Welcome to Candid COVID Conversations with Mary. It's a brand new podcast. It's a brand new podcast and it's probably going to change from candid to something else, but we'll have to come up with another adjective after you talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so grateful that you're here with me. So let's talk about why we're doing this. I was looking for a collaborator and I couldn't think of a better person to collaborate with uh, because I think it's really important for us to capture this time in our history. People are going to be looking back. Historians are going to be looking back at this time. And I think they're going to look at metropolitan areas, which are completely different. And then a city like Ithaca or Ann Arbor or, you know, Madison or Bloomington, for that matter. It's the only blue spot in Indiana. But also then they're and then they're going to look at rural and, and see what happens to people, because some of the people who believe that they shouldn't have to observe social distancing. That's right. That's happening right now. And in, yeah, in, in uh, Michigan. Michigan and Lansing, Michigan. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's exactly one of the reasons I wanted to do this. So just to frame this podcast, Mary, you and I both live in the bucolic town of Ithaca, New York. And I was born here. Oh, lucky you. (laughs) I wasn't conceived here, but I was born here. There you go. (laughs) So you've been here. But I was conceived in another liberal town. I was conceived in Ann Arbor. Ah, so so you've been basically in liberal college towns for your entire life, and most of your life spent here. And it's fair to say that you're a few years older than me. I'm 57 years old right now. Yes, I'm, 58. I'm 71 and a half. So there you go. Well, I kind of have a hard time believing that because you're so sprightly, so youthful, and full of vim and vigor, as they say. Um, well, um, but Christmas 1948 brings us to another state. That's what my mother wrote in the the holiday letter about how they moved. Interesting. Yes. And they lived on South Hill until they bought a house in Forest Home when I was six months old. So we're one month in, Mary, you know, just about. Remember we got, we. so Mary and I are both educators. I'm a school librarian. Um, Mary has many, many years of teaching experience and continues to teach. Yeah, I, I think I started teaching at Ithaca High School in 1971. Wow. And then, and then I taught there for two years. Then I went to Colorado to grad school, came back and took a break from grad school, substitute taught here, then went back to Colorado and taught school there until 1980 and then came back here in 1980. So and I've been you, teaching for years. Yes. And so you know students, you know, um, this is p- part of why you're so youthful that you, you're, you spend a lot of time around young people. And I feel the same kind of way. Well, they're one of my drugs of choice. (laughs) 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 They are. I, you know, I would much prefer to be around high school kids than a lot of other people that are just, you know, they, they, the exuberance, the energy, to me, it really helps me. Mm -hmm. And it and it makes me want to learn more stuff. You know, it it's very. I think it's very cool. This is another challenge, though, doing this long distance or the whatever it's called now, the distance learning. I find it. A real challenge. Kids may find it easier than we do. I don't know, but it's that you can't have that close-up interaction. You can't have any touchy-feely shit going on. You know, yeah. everything feels distant. Everything feels well. Like we're we're doing the best we can. Yeah, but you can't have that that sudden intimate moment that you never thought would happen. You know, you even in the, with a whole class where they go, "Oh my God, we got it!" You That's know, right. even with one kid, where they go, "Oh." I 
finally understand what you mean because we don't, I can't meet with every kid individually. And also, you know, you, if you see someone and they clearly are exhibiting signs of social or emotional distress, you can pull them aside privately and have a conversation, but it's a lot harder to do that when you are interacting with a large group. And yeah, it's only the students who, I mean, my students that I have now only have known me really for two weeks, except they may have met me, you know, from subbing, but there are some of them, when I've done some practice meetups, the ones who show up, I probably could have written down on a piece of paper who would have. And it's, I, it's to me, it's clear some of these people really want social connection and they're not getting it. And others are going, I need to keep doing everything possible in my education. In fact, one of the students has already asked me to write her recommendation, which I find very interesting because I think she figured out that the person whom I'm taking over for will not be available. So what I'd like to do is just sort of frame this podcast because I'm not sure how many episodes we'll do. And so I don't want to make each episode very long, but what I want to do is sort of dip into different areas uh, because again, we're, we're one month in and I think it's a little over than a month, you know, well, five days in and it's because it was Friday the 13th. Well, I guess oh, that's right. It's five and it's almost five, five weeks tomorrow. That's right. So Friday, the 13th of, uh, March uh, of March, we were 17th tomorrow, but that makes it five weeks. Right. So what, what happened is we were, we were anticipating that some announcement would come as soon as we would have a confirmed COVID case in Tompkins County. We had one. And next thing you know, our school district is closed and we're rushing out of there and we know that we're not coming back for a good long time. And I don't so be back, but I don't know if, if we're asked to go back, I think it's going to be a conundrum. Yeah. I, I, I don't anticipate that we're going to go back this school year. And in fact, I'm already wondering about September. I listen to a lot of podcasts that uh, address uh, COVID either head on or obliquely. And uh, the sense that I'm getting especially from science journalists and from scientists, is that uh, there are a lot of things that have to be in place. One reason I've chosen you as uh, a conversation buddy is to find a way of keeping social with you, but also to get some ideas from you. Thank you, because that, that's a big issue for me. Right. So, so Mary, you, I mean, you're not exactly that vulnerable, but I guess you would be considered in the pool of more vulnerable people because you're a little bit older. Um, alone. And I have for many, I, I have for since 1994, I've been a single parent. Hmm. And then when my kids left home, I mean, it was always, this, I, I've been used to running a household for years. So it's a long time. So what's, how are you coping emotionally right now with this isolation, the physical isolation? It is really hard, but as you probably know this about me, I'm a speed freak, you know, so I, I do not sit well. And I, I find that that's one of my, you know, I, I can, I try to go out walking or biking as much as I can, or I, I work in my yard, but the lack of interaction with people is very difficult. And if I bump into somebody whom I know, I'm sort of feeling okay, but then I'm careful because I, I don't I don't really quite understand this virus. I don't know if I should stand apart from someone and have a conversation with them. And at and this I, point, 
I think a lot of people feel that way, even though Ithaca appears to be, knock on wood, fairly safe. Well, I have some news for you. And this is news. I have not shared this with you yet. Okay. Um, I found out today that someone I know has COVID. In Ithaca. In Ithaca. And I'm not going to reveal who they are. But um, I will tell you that my presumption is that every member of the family, and we're talking about a family of five, has it. And they're all, only one person has been tested. And that person is officially on the, on the roster, you know, as so to speak, you yeah. know, the, the county information. I think as of yesterday, it was 118 people. But in this circumstance, I would presume that every other member of the family has had it now. So when you think about that kind of situation, I think our number count is way, way off. When you hear about uh, healthcare professionals working so hard in hospitals and thinking that they've had it and then they just uh, self-quarantine and then they come back after two weeks. And well, I know my, my next door neighbor um, who treated the first case in Hopkins County and then she was put in quarantine and she got very sick. She said she'd never get sick. She's like my age. I think she's a little younger than I am. She said she, she's basically a very healthy person. She had never been so sick, but she tested negative. And then she asked to be tested again because she said she had never felt as exhausted and whatever. And they said, well, we have to wait and see. And for like four days, she was okay. And then five days later, it came back. She got tested again and it came back negative, but she's pretty sure she had it. That's right. There's, uh, there's she's all okay sorts now, of possibilities. But the good news is she's okay now, but yeah. she just socked herself inside her house. And I didn't, I didn't know this. And she said, well, I wasn't telling people and I, people were bringing me food. She was, I mean, I actually delivered some hot bread to her one night, but I didn't know that she was quarantined. Yeah. I just put it on her doorstep. And I texted her and said, there's hot bread out here for, but I, for you, but I, I think that you're right. And that's what makes me really, really nervous. That's right. And, you know, I, my mother is 85 years old. Uh, she has, has, has had heart issues over the years. She's, you know, suffered a stroke in the past. So she's incredibly vulnerable and uh, she's been waiting for uh hip replacement. She's been isolated now, you know, my mother lived, was a child grow, uh, growing Germany. up in Germany during the war, World yeah. War II. Well, and, yeah, she was very young then. Yes, but she recalls it with vivid detail. And the last time we, we did a socially distanced little picnic with her and brought her some groceries about a week ago. And uh, the first thing she started talking about was war stories. Uh, because I think, just like all of us, we're trying to find historical parallels and I'm sure you... You know, you know, my mother was born in 1920. and I mean, she's 100. Or she's going to be 100. But she grew up in Germany. So, I mean, and but therefore, our diet was so controlled by her. She, she's, she's a terrible cook. And it's a family... It's a family secret. You know, and part of it was is that she... Everything still was... You know, you had one small piece of meat to feed eight people. Even though they had my, you know, my father was a was a professor. They had enough money, but she prided herself in that we were on these very stringent diets, 
to get us through. This was in the 1950s. So in the 1950s. So does do you think that your understanding and appreciation of that, just like mine, um, helps to frame uh, this time for you a little bit in a way or prepare it, you in a way? It does, except the weird thing with this is that you go to see your mother, but you can't touch her, you can't be near her. Um, so that's different. You know, granted, tomorrow... I mean, I don't want to be, sound negative or whatever, but it, you know, my next door neighbor's house could be bombed and my mine wouldn't be. That, that was what World War II was all about, right? And right. during the Blitzkrieg, and then Blitzkrieg, and then in Germany, the War of Retaliation, or you know, Krieg ohne whatever War Without Mercy, because of the Blitzkrieg. So you know, you you didn't know from day to day who your who was going to survive, or who you were going to take in. And here it's like, yeah, we don't know from day to day who's who's alive or not, except in Ithaca, it's a little bit more predictable as long as we are, are observing this social distancing. So to me, I, you know, it, during that time, people actually, I think it was almost the other extreme. People came together. There were babies born who were, you know, never met their fathers, you know, because either... They were soldiers who weren't British or whatever, or, or English, or I mean, German or French, but people were able to touch each other. Can't touch each other now. You can with your family, with your boys and your and with your wife. I can't touch anybody. Anybody. I can't, no. I can't get a hug from anybody. I can't, I mean, I know that a lot of male, males are going, I'm so fucking tired of male hugs. I'm really glad I don't have to give another one. <laughs> Maybe we were laughing about that today on our walk with the people that I walk with, you know, all these things that come out. But, you know, I think people that don't live alone don't get it. Because they'll often say, well, we walk with you every day. And I go, yeah. And you go home and you, 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 you're planning your comfort food dinners with your partner and you watch programs together and you share it with each other. The only way I do that is virtually. Wow, that's that's profound. And you know, I have to say, I feel like we kind of won the lottery with regard to the, the social distancing situation. And I feel just like for my entire life, I feel guilty about one thing or the other. It's part of being, you know, German American and whatnot. But um, I feel very guilty about the, the Catholics invented it, but the but the Jew, I mean, the Jews invented it, and the Catholics tried to no, yeah, the Jews invented it, and the Catholics tried to make it into an art form. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel I feel really very fortunate, and I also feel very guilty because I'm well aware that I I see you, I see my mom, I see my my sister in Germany with her elderly husband who is 82 years old and he has this deadly combination of respiratory issues, heart issues and dementia, and, and dementia now. But let's stop and make a pause. He's got good health care. That's true. That's true. He's seeing his doctor once a week. Because I just, today I heard from the woman I walk with, there was an interview on the, the daily, not the daily show, but the daily. The daily. I listen to it every day. Yeah, and she was saying about the woman who was living in her car with a cat. Oh, it's so she, sad. But she called. This woman my walk with is very generous, and she has lots of money. And I can't mention her name, but 
Um, she called the program. She was going to send money to the woman so she could get an apartment. Really? And they are, and they told me, they told her somebody else already had. The woman had been set up in an apartment with a job already. So, but she said, let me send the amount of money I was going to send to her, to the organization. That's right. I was hearing today about this um, nonprofit organization called Robin Hood. I think it's Robin Hood Foundation. It's a- uh, it, Somebody ought to send that to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yeah. He, he can save the postal service. He uses them when he sends the packages. If you want to return anything, you have to use UPS, which is a bunch of crap. Yeah. Pre Perara had this guy on uh, who runs the Robin Hood Foundation, I think it's called. And they do major philanthropic work trying to. Is that what you're, you're donating money to? I'm, I plan on it when I get my government check. But, you know, it was really interesting to try to think, you know, we have some such systemic problems. So there's a lot for us to unpack. And, you know, in our podcast, maybe we can revisit these subjects as we go yeah. through thinking about historic injustices, thinking about brown and black people, thinking about all sorts of marginalized people who are now suffering. They're dying at a faster rate, at a higher rate. They're um, suffering much more than us middle class folk. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's this wonderful German poem, I could find it somewhere, about, you know, if all of our workers went back to the country they came from, there would be no one to take care of us. That's right. Because, you know, Germany, after the war, Germans didn't want anybody, they didn't want to be cleaning women or waiters or whatever. And, and, and they had all of these other people caring for them. And now those are the people, you know, who are getting the virus. Right. Although, to be fair to Germany, I mean, they have the, the you know, Angela Merkel is, is still the leader of the free world. And they have cases, but they don't have as many deaths per capita. I mean, Switzerland, apparently, I haven't checked recently, but for shame for Switzerland that they have a higher per capita death rate. It's interesting. In Sweden, I'm reading that they have very relaxed social distancing yeah. <laughs> procedures in place. And wow, well, they're going to be bitten. Yes, they are. Um, oh, man, it's so much to absorb. I mean, think about this, Mary. It's been an abstract thing for us until about a month ago when it became suddenly very, very real. So now for one month, we've been educating ourselves. We've been reading everything. I mean, you, I'm sure you're just like me. Everything you can read, every news source, podcasts, every... I have to I have to sort of cut my hands off metaphorically to say no more watching something. I find that, oh, wow, I could go watch a movie on Cinemopolis, you know, because they have that now. Did you know that? Yes. And I even downloaded the app, so I have it on my Roku. And when I did, I found out that there are many independent films you can watch. Many. You have to pay for it. But that's what I should be doing instead of listening to all the different news shows that I find myself doing at night, which probably keeps me from sleeping. That's, you know, but that we become addicted. Yeah, I, it's for me, it's, 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 well, for all of us, it's complicated, right? So like adjusting your news intake diet and when to stop, when to stop. Like, for example, I might watch, like I've been watching Seth Meyers uh, and uh, the Colbert Report. You know, they're doing these, they're doing their comedy. Colbert um, and his basic son whom you never see. He just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You see his foot every now and then. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, that's comfort. So, like, 
they're funny, but they're, of course, it also gets you worked up. And then before I go to bed, just out of habit, I check the New York Times and the Washington Post. And then what am I reading right now? I'm reading The Plague. <laughs> well, I find that, you know, somebody's, yeah, I, I just, I got this, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't understand as someone who lives alone and that it's another voice in my house that's not mine. And it's really important to me. And I, but I'm listening to a, I, from the New York Public Library, which I would tell everybody to get a card from for from New York State because it's such a wonderful library system. It's a great deal. I know. I'm but using they, my card all the time. They only give two weeks on audiobooks, unlike the public library here that gives three. But they have an amazing selection. But I I listened to the latest book by Colin McCann, McCann called um, A Paragon which is probably one of the most beautiful books I've listened to in a long, long time, but it's not a happy read. I mean, it's, it's a true story about the, a Palestinian and an Israeli who both lost children due to terrorist attacks and how they came together being in this group called, oh, I'm going to blank on it now. Uh, shoot, it, it's a weird thing. Um, it's like fighters for peace. So it's a weird word, but it's even stronger than fighters. I'm gonna, I forget the word now. And they even talk about why that word is used because if we shouldn't be, oh, combatants for peace, it's called. But these men actually allowed themselves to be interviewed by Colin McCann, but he spent time, they spent time in Ireland dealing with the, the, the conflict in Ireland, the religious conflict there. But it is a beautiful book, but it is heavy. But the last 20 minutes of the book, this morning I was going, okay, I'm going to listen to it. It was returned on me. <laughs> oh, oh, that's painful. And I went in and I have to hold it. And I won't read it. <laughs> but I did, I decided I wanted to, to own the book because apparently there are pictures and drawings in the book that I think I want to see. So that, that's okay. But it's read by an Irishman, which is beautiful. Oh, that's nice. Irish men should, or and women should read all books. Well, if I could understand Brazilian Portuguese, I would um, listen to only Brazilian Portuguese because I think it's the most beautiful, flowing language. <laughs> well, it sounds very, it's a Slavic romance sound. <laughs> it's the opposite of German. <laughs> oh, but I, you see, I guess I would disagree with you because I think German can be extremely beautiful. It can be. You know, when man so Deutsch spricht, ich meine, es ist eine wunderbare Sprache. Ich meine, die Sprache singt. Okay. But if you wanted to do Hogan's Heroes, yeah, of course, it's a terrible language. But you know, English is a hideous sounding language. Think of all the New Yorkers that talk like this, or the British. When I was in Spain, uh, you know, a month and a half ago, where I, you know, the Spain, the, the British are the, uh, the ugly tourists of of Spain, but they talk like this and they order things like this and they yell in restaurants, you know, they're awful. So English is not such a grand language. Oh, I, I, I really like British English. But. Oh, I love listening to it, but you're sitting in a restaurant and you hear somebody going, waiter, I didn't get what I ordered. You know, <laughs> like shit, you know, it's almost like, wait, I didn't get what I ordered, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, but in German, you know, if you've watched Babylon Berlin on Netflix, in Berlin, and it's in the Berlin dialect. I have it's to watch an award-winning series. Okay. It's phenomenal. It's about Weimar, the Weimar Republic. And so you know things are going to go south. Uh, 
but it, it's won loads of awards, but it's all done in the Berlin, the Berlin dialect, which is beautiful. You know, the uh, da instead of das, yeah, the, the, you know, it's, it's beautiful. So I think every language has its beauty. I mean, people often quote in Goethe because they can't find the translation that's as beautiful. Uh, in, like in Jules and Jim, mm -hmm. when he, in the film, when he quotes, he can't find something as beautiful in French. Interesting. So I think, yeah, I mean, it all depends on who's speaking the language and how it's being portrayed. Yeah, I get that. Because I think, I mean, I think Dutch is an hysterically funny language, and I know the Dutch hate me for saying that, but I always laugh a lot. But, you know, I, it's not a pretty language, I don't think. But if it has, if they, they, they don't overemphasize the consonants, it, it can be very beautiful. I think the consonants in a language make it, can make it ugly. Russian is a gorgeous language. Yeah. You know, that's, I think Portuguese to me almost sounds like it has... It's such a beautiful language. Mm -hmm. It really is a beautiful language. Thus, any Russian scholar, any any student you ever get, like Victor, who I think, uh, Vincent, uh, Vincent, Vincent, yes. I don't think he came back, did he? Vincent C. did not come back as far as I know. Yeah, I don't think he could. Yeah. Okay, Mary, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you like one or two more questions and then we're going to wrap it up and then we're going to revisit and, and I'll check in I'm with you. I'm probably going to go on a walk after this and bring you the almond oatmeal cranberry cookies I made. Ooh, we were with just talking your, about our desire your, for dessert. With your $1,000 check, of course. <laughs> <laughs> full, full disclosure, I'm um, helping out Mary a little bit with grocery shopping and it's kind of... You are helping me out totally. I have not been in a store in five weeks. I think I'm the only person I know. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk just like, I want to wrap it up. I, I'm doing a lot of uh, daydreaming. I'm a, an optimist, an eternal optimist. My entire life, I've been an optimist, even when things are really, really dark. Like for example, in 2016, the day before my son's birthday, Toby, uh, the day before his birthday, I... No, I reassured him. Right, November. I reassured him that never remembered that when he when he wakes up when he wakes up in the morning, uh, Hillary Clinton will be president. I had to be the one to break that news. Okay, so I'm still an optimist, though. I'm still an optimist. So I've been thinking a lot about long term implications for you know, like what happens after there's a vaccine. What happens after we re we come back to some form of normalcy. I'm optimistic that, for example, under, say, a Biden presidency, there will be... We hope. Uh, yes, okay, see, I'm an optimist, that there will be um, a, a, an FDR-like New Deal project that's based on you know, the Green New Deal as, as one of the components. I, I, I'm an optimist in terms of thinking about where we're going to go with access to health care. And, um, well, I, 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 I'm going to interrupt you there because I think unless, and I find it so interesting that red in this country is affiliated with the right wing, because I always think, you know, when I was growing up, I was always made fun of because my father being a Russian born Jew was better red than dead, better dead than red. 
because Reds were the communists. So I think it's so interesting now. But unless in the red states, more people die or suffer from the virus, I don't want them to. But if they don't and they get appropriate health care, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, in Lansing, Michigan, and in South Dakota, um, in Wyoming, where I think there's one Democrat and maybe two black people, I I mean, I'm being facetious, but that's very few. I I really wonder if that's going to, you know, you understand what I'm saying? I do. That I think that on the on the both coasts it it always is there i have a friend who has whose son has an asian girlfriend and she can can no longer walk in her neighborhood that and it's an asian neighborhood awful. but 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 people drive by in cars and throw stuff and spit on them this oh, is in portland or this is in portland oregon this is just awful i mean that portland does have actually a long history of right right wing presence right but it's also considered to be one of the great progressive cities in this country. Well, and also one of the most expensive small cities to move to. So people are moving out, moving to Idaho, and we can hope there'll be enough blue people in Idaho that maybe change something. Okay, so Mary, you're going to be the realist in my optimism as okay. we continue this conversation. Uh, so let's end on a on a maybe upbeat note. Okay. Um, what's can you can you think of like some of the weirdest or strangest things that you've ended up finding yourself doing uh, during your period of voluntary I, isolation? So I was th- I was thinking about that after you told me that. I think one of the very interesting things. It's not so weird because a lot of people talk about this. You don't get up in the morning and go, "What am I going to wear?" You know, except it's cold out. I need to wear a sweater. You know, but do I have to? You know, I, I find I wash the same jeans over and over again, and then I wear them. You know, that kind of thing. Or does it really matter if I go outside in my pajama pants? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know if weird is the right word. I mean, it's just it's just weird that you can't have social interaction. It is so, I mean, I can have it like this but that it really is virtual. And I think of the film, I'm just thinking of this now, the film Paris, Texas. Did you ever see that film? Oh, I love that film. I love it. But remember how he needs, he goes to see the prostitutes and they're always, you know, the glass separates them. Right. And that's sort of this feeling of I'm separated from my world by glass. Yeah. Which, I mean, I'm, I'm so fortunate that I have a house and I have a backyard and I can go across the street and be, I can walk. I don't have to get in my car. That's what, that's what distinguishes us from uh, our our New York city friends and Detroit friends and Baltimore friends. And can you imagine, I just can't imagine being in a shoebox apartment with a lot of. I know that from the woman, the women I work with, she has two daughters in New York and one daughter is married. And, you know, so they have, their life and they can both work from home luckily and her other daughter made a pod with this gay couple and so they made this agreement they both work from they all work from home but they would only see each other and they would have dinner together every night you know and I think that's what people are doing and one friend of mine tried to do these zoom meets where she wanted us all she wanted to drop off dinner at our house 
and then have us all get together and eat her dinner. And that to me just seemed weird because I would, I would much rather just say, let's have a Zoom meet. I don't need to have, I mean, yeah, I get, I'm really tired of, oh, I guess I'm really tired of my own cooking, but I never went out that much. But it's the idea that I can't go to Wegmans and just go to the food bar. That's right. You know, I, you, anything that you think of, it's sort of like uh, on the Fall Creek Listserv, they talk about going to restaurants and, and getting all their carryout. And I thought I, I usually don't do that. And, you know, I, I, it's not um, an expense I want to incur right now. Yes, I, I want to support local businesses, but we don't do it either. We, we, we love cooking. And so. Well, you have good eaters. I think if I had somebody here, I mean, when I bake, it's sort of like today, I, it was cold. We had snow, as you know. So I thought, I just want to bake cookies. I want the house to be warm and smell good. You know, I mean, that, that desire, because, oh, because I'm home all the time. I mean, I, I do knit and sew, and I listen to books when I do that and listen to music. But who would have ever thought I would have designed a jackalope apron? <laughs> <laughs> I love jackalopes, and I love hearts. But I designed this jackalope apron. That, I mean, I, that's where I would go to any Wyoming bar just to see the jackalopes. But I would not get into a political conversation with anybody in Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> they would fucking shoot me. <laughs> I think literally they would shoot me. They're very friendly, but you're right. They are. They are very <laughs> friendly to a point. But you don't talk politics. True. And I think the lack of... Uh, I don't like to. I don't like to use the word assimilation or integration. I like to work, look at the word as pan nationalism. I mean, where people, it doesn't matter where you're from or where you're born, you should be welcome. Yes. You no, know, and and that is not something that happens easily in in our deep south or in places like Wyoming or South Dakota. Well, although you know, South Dakota does have. I don't know. I I, I shouldn't talk about South Dakota because I don't know how they treat Native Americans, but I'm yeah. pretty sure it's not great. My experience is li- limited but positive because in my in my mid twenties I bicycled across the country, and in a situation like that you're kind of vulnerable vul- vulnerable, and uh, you rely on the kindness of strangers and people. Oh, you like Blanche Dubois? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we had we had almost universally positive experiences, but then again well, we didn't talk politics and uh, whatnot. Well, no, I think about when I hitchhike with, you know, my rock and roll boyfriend and we, you know, we hitchhiked to, well, it was an interesting story, but we hitchhiked to Martha's Vineyard, but because he was from Ann Arbor, I was going to school in Ann Arbor, but one of his best friends was Gilder Radner. And so when we were, we got off the boat in Martha's Vineyard and we were told that it, we, we thought, oh, we'll just go to Martha's Vineyard and make love upon the wet sand and peace, love, tie, dye. You know, we get off the boat and they go, if you're not in a hotel or motel by midnight or somewhere, we're putting you in jail for the night and putting you back on the ferry. This was 1967. Whoa. And so it was, it was sort of like, you know, he had really long hair. I, you know, looked like an outrageous hippie, whatever. And we're in Vineyard Haven or someplace on the street. And we're trying to find a place to stay. And all of a sudden out of the darkness, I hear this voice and there I was. And I went, that's Gilda. And Gilda Radner was doing summer stock in on Martha's Vineyard. And she and Billy were, Billy Kirchen, who now, you know, is a rock and roll star. I mean, a 
very respected guitar player. He's awesome. He's awesome. But they were, they had done children's theater together in Ann Arbor. That's how I met her. And I actually lived with her later after he broke my heart and I lived with her. She, she told me at that point, she also knew she would die of ovarian cancer because her mother had, this was back in 1968 when she told me this, but she found us a place to stay. She goes, I know just where you can stay. <laughs> the, the, the Katzenbach, who was the secretary of, uh, of state for Kennedy. Um, I mean, for Johnson, excuse me. Uh, Kennedy had been assassinated. He had a home on Martha's Vineyard. All of his oldest son, uh, who went to Exeter, they had given them a house for the summer with all of his friends, but none of them could cook. And they and she said, I'll tell them about you. You can go there and cook. So I went there for a week. We stayed there and we cooked for them. And then we were invited to the mansion for dinner. Unbelievable. Because my father was doing, you know, he's the founder of Head Start. And so he was doing, he was working with the White House Council on Children. So they wanted me to come to dinner with my outrageous looking boyfriend and their black maid. <laughs> so that was another whole experience. <sighs> wow. That's an amazing story. And that's a great way to, Mary, I know you have tons of stories like this and I look forward to hearing, uh, hearing more from you as we talking to you. I'm going to walk over to your house right now. So get ready for dessert. Well, you haven't uh, eaten yet. Uh, we had dinner, yeah. Oh, good. Well, I'll be over there pretty soon. You're awesome. Mary, thank you. I, I love this. This is really great. So two birds with one stone. I get to learn more great, great Mary stories. And I get and, to learn your stories. So that's great, too. <laughs> and hopefully we're entertaining an audience of uh, dozens. You're not, you're not putting up visuals, are you? No, no. Just oh, the okay. audio. Okay. So we'll be back with Mary probably in another week or so. And what are you going to call this? It's called Candid COVID Conversations with Mary. <laughs> From the garden. <laughs> you can guess which one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. This has been a lot of fun. It's fun. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.